<laughs> There's this misconception that alcohol seems to be a health food. That's the misconception that we all get. We keep hearing that wine is good for your brain, a certain amount of wine is good for your brain, and, and reality is the amount of alcohol that's good for your brain is zero. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Falls Church, Virginia, Loma Linda, California, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 22 of season 5, number 321 overall. Today, well, this is all about your brain and having a healthy mind as you grow older. Now, there has been some controversial research recently about whether alcohol can keep that from happening. And the particular study that we're going to be discussing shows that beer and wine and spirits they all cause the brain to shrink. Yes, they cause the brain to shrink. Now, you may be saying, well, what do you mean the brain shrinks? Well, here to explain are two of the most celebrated neuroscientists and Alzheimer's disease experts on the planet. They are known as the Brain Docs. They are our friends, Dean and Aisha Scherzai. Also today, we're going to be tapping into their Alzheimer's expertise and finding out what you should be doing right now to lower your risk of developing Alzheimer's and whether animal proteins, all of them, can contribute to cognitive decline and how to slow the progression of Alzheimer's if, God forbid, you're diagnosed with it. Plus, why happiness and humor can be critical for keeping your brain healthy and functioning at a high level as you get older. And to that end, this really is a fun interview. Dean and Aisha are ridiculously fun to talk to, and they have that rare ability to take these really complicated concepts and make them easy to understand. And they do it in a way that's going to put a smile on your face. And they're not afraid to get a little immature along the way, as you'll hear. So feel free to get silly right alongside of us. It's okay to laugh about a serious topic because, after all, it's good for you. So let's get this party started right now. The Brain Docs, Dean and Aisha Shurzai on The Exam Room. Thank you both so very much for being here. Thank you so much for having Thank us, you. Chuck. It's always wonderful to see you and to speak with you. Oh, yeah. You guys are pure personality. And I think that that's part of what makes you so impactful with your message is being able to build that connection with your audience, whether they're uh, reading your book or they're hearing you on a podcast or watching you on YouTube or Facebook. You just have this, this ability that few people have to really get in there and connect. And so that is truly, uh, really then another a joy for me to have you guys here. And um Let's start with, with your social media, right? You have made some changes there. Uh, you are now at the Brain Docs on Instagram, important handle update. And so when I'm getting ready 
to do this interview, I'm going through and I'm doing some prep and I come across this post and it has to do with alcohol and shrinkage. Now that's a whole other episode, but in this case, we're talking about brain shrinkage yeah. and you talk about the consumption, the heavy alcohol consumption, actually shrinking the brain. So the first question is what exactly do you mean by this? Yeah. So there's uh, this misconception that alcohol seems to be a health food or that's the misconception that we all get we keep hearing that wine is good for your brain um, a certain amount of wine is good for your brain and and reality is the amount of alcohol that's good for your for your brain is zero and now that's a that's that's going to lose a lot of audience members yeah. and and we've gotten quite a bit of pushback because people like drinking a little wine here and there and we actually ourselves once in a while on rare occasions we do drink wine that what we do is separate uh, from what the science is right i mean we try to be very very healthy most of the time and as it applies to alcohol same thing but alcohol is actually a toxin i mean any amount of alcohol can be bad for your brain in itself mm -hmm. how it relates to your stress management how it relates to your social ability how it relates to how your the convivial nature of your personality that's a separate thing People make those arguments because it lowers the stress level in certain people. Maybe it's beneficial. But at the molecular level, there is no benefit. And then more and more, there's data that actually, even at the population level, when you look at the data in a clean way, when you can control for other factors, you see that even small amounts of alcohol is not good for your brain and actually shrinks the brain, meaning that cells die, connections are severed, and the brain shrinks. And, and although that happens regularly in, in a Western diet or a Western lifestyle, mm -hmm. it, it, it appears to be worse when people who drink even small amounts, but definitely when they drink a lot. Right. Absolutely. So what, what amount are we talking about here? What, what would be a heavy drinker here? Because I think in this post you referenced maybe even just one drink a day. Is that accurate? Yeah. So the latest data, this paper actually came out, um, uh, just a couple of days ago, a few days ago, last week on the 4th, I think. And, you know, more and more studies are showing that there really is no such thing as little bit of alcohol or what, you know, our least favorite word is moderate amount of alcohol. What does it even mean? You know? <laughs> it's such a meaningless term. And, you know, with all the data that is coming to us and with all the tools that we have, we can actually see that alcohol causes damage to not only the cells, brain cells, but also to the connections of the brain cells. So it, the, the best thing about science is, you know, we, we change our minds as we get more and more better and better data. And now we have better data telling us that there is no such thing as, you know, a little bit of wine being helpful for the brain. Now, now the next natural question is, can I drink any alcohol and be fine? Mm. And, and that's a very important question. I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's a question that should be asked because we do lots of things that are not perfectly healthy. For example, sedentary behavior, you know, sitting around for eight hours in a row watching, what's the show we watched, uh, uh, the whole series? Um, the Ozarks? The Ozarks, you know. <laughs> you know Netflix. Oh, it's such a good show, though. Is, I completely understand. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. loved I mean, you couldn't even get up. So that's not healthy. But once in a while, you do things like that. And 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 uh, you uh, we eat, you know, some some uh, plant-based burger once on rare occasions, which are never a little more fat. And that's not healthy. Salt but and we're not going to change science because we do that. The science says that it's bad. 
We're going to say it's bad and we've done a bad thing and it's okay once in a while. How much can each of us do of, you know, partake of these negative things in our life and still be okay is complex question. It has to do with our resilience, our, uh, what they call cognitive reserve, a, a, a brain bank, bank account, meaning the connectivities that we have created that can withstand any trauma. Mm -hmm. And we can do quite a bit to create that kind of resilience. And that resilience matters. If you have a lots of resilience, if you have a huge bank account, you can do more and still not be damaged as much. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be damaged at all, but you're going to be damaged less. Mm -hmm. If you do, if you have very little reserve, the smallest bit can actually push you over. And us, we, we actually see patients in the hospital and we see this all the time. People who have low resilience, and we can define it in a, in a few minutes, what that means. Even a small UTI when they're in their 60s, yeah. urinary tract infection pushes them over and they become, uh, you know, delirious and, and, and have confusion and even dementia. Absolutely. But others who've had an incredible life of resilience, they, you know, face small strokes and, and trauma and everything, and they're still able to maintain their cognitive capacity. That's important. Mm -hmm. That speaks to how much wine you can drink. That speaks to, I mean, it doesn't, it's not helpful, but you can withstand more damage. Mm -hmm. Speaks to how many other bad things you can do and still withstand it. So resilience does matter in that picture. So when you're talking about resilience, is there a way to build that resilience up or are, or is everybody born with the same level of resilience and then you just kind of make withdrawals over time? It's just a matter of how quickly you deplete those savings. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a great question and our entire message of why we're on social media, why we're outside of our clinic and engaging with the community and with everyone is just that that we have tremendous amount of control in building that resilience. So the resilience is brain reserve, you know, what you're born with, you know, making sure that you, you know, when babies are born, that they're healthy, that they haven't had any head traumas, that during their intrauterine life, their mothers were healthier, et cetera, et cetera. And then the cognitive reserve is everything else that we build from the day we're born, you know, making sure that we're exposed to a loving, comfortable environment with, you know, lack of toxins, good food, sleep, movement, uh, having a purpose driven life. All of that is critically important. So even if, you know, sometimes if the brain reserve is not perfect, we have a lot of uh, influence on how we can build our brain and how we can expand it. Because, you know, as sensitive as the brain sounds, you know, this this three pound little gelatinous organ, it has tremendous capacity to continuously grow and continuously connect the cells if it's given the right environment. I mean, Aisha said it beautifully. I mean, the connect, the, the, the original size of the brain is, you know, grows rapidly within the first five years. And that's cellular growth. In fact, what's amazing is at a certain age, like three to three to five, there's a process called apoptosis, programmed cell death. There's actually a dying back of cells. That dying back actually leaves infrastructure that ultimately is the infrastructure of your brain, the cells, how they're organized and all of that. And then thereafter, there's the connectivity between each cells. I mean, we have 87 billion neurons, but each of the neurons can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections. Do the math. That's incredible plasticity. That's incredible resilience. 87 billion neurons making thousands of connections, each of them. 
Now, those thousands of connections are not programmed. Those are not the determined uh, a priori and, and everybody has the same amount. No. What, as Aisha said, by getting rid of the bad things, well, for example, we know fetal tissues, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, mothers of children, uh, infants that had drank alcohol during uh, pregnancy, they create significant damage in the babies or drinking in the first few years, or even if there's alcohol that children consume accidentally or otherwise. Right. But beyond alcohol, we're talking about other things, bad food, things that we don't even talk about nowadays, right. the amount of sugar in our diet, the amount of fat in our diet, salt. saturated, the amount of salt, these things matter or absence of certain things like B12 mm -hmm. or omega-3 or not enough uh, antioxidants, anti-inflammatories like in greens and beans and all of that stuff. Those things really create the infrastructure of that brain to grow. It's ready to grow. You've given it all the fuel. Now all you have to do is push it. Where does the push come from? Movement, exercise. Exercise pushes the blood vessels to connect. Where does other movement come from? Mental activity. Mm -hmm. An organized, resilient, positive mental growth, not this stress-induced mental growth that a lot of children go in school, but a personalized education system where it's built around that child's strengths and around their joys, around their pleasures. Learning is gamified. That actually grows the connections between neurons exponentially. I, we say that every child has a potential to be a genius mm -hmm. if we do you know, the right things. Now, Whenever we say things like this or the fact that Alzheimer's can be avoided, there's a sense of guilt and, or people say, are you trying to say that we did something wrong? No, nobody's done anything wrong. We're saying that what we could do to do better as a society, as, as communities, all of us together matters instead of, um, so that's where the resilience happens. Yeah. Uh, in the first few years, in the first 20 years of life, uh, that's where you create that connectivity. And then afterwards, the kind of jobs you have, how you entertain yourself, how you push your brain around your purpose makes those connections. And those are not nominal things. They are literally the protection for your brain. If you look at the nun study, yeah. the nun study is amazing. It really is. It's incredible. And you, in the nun study, they found that, you know, nuns who had better vocabulary, who were connected more with the community, in spite of having pathology of Alzheimer's disease in the brain, they actually never had any symptoms. Uh, on the contrary, you know, the nuns who were more withdrawn, they were sedate, they were kind of, you know, staying indoors and not really connecting with everyone else and had lower vocabulary. They didn't really expose themselves too much to activity. They didn't have much Alzheimer's pathology in their brains, but they actually manifested the symptoms quite early, even with a relatively good looking brain. So that gives us a great window to understanding that, you know, brain resilience and cognitive resilience is a thing that you can continuously work on in your life. So when you say pathology in this particular study, would I be correct in assuming that they had received an Alzheimer's diagnosis? After the fact, they did. Yeah. Okay. After they died, all of the nuns had agreed to give their brains for autopsy. And th these nuns had uh, Alzheimer's diagnosis. They had microvascular disease. They had strokes. Yet, they never manifested the outcomes of those. Right. Why? Because they had uh, a, a more connected neurons and that protected them in spite of pathology. Mm -hmm. That resilience is what I'm talking about. And the reason that we bring up things like alcohol and a fat, a saturated fat and sugar and things like that is because we have to know what's bad, but we also have to know that we have control, both in avoiding those, but even in, in spite of those, 
creating resili resilience in so many different ways. We're talking about the neuro concept that Aisha and I always talk about, yeah. our neuro concept, which is nutrition, whole food, plant-based, exercise, significant exercise, more than people think that they need to. Um, uh, um, you is, I'm sorry, you is unwind or stress management and a, a particular method of stress management. Ours is restorative sleep. There's a reason we're knocked out for eight hours. Those eight hours are literally the most important eight hours of your, of your day where the brain recuperates, mm -hmm. rejuvenates. It actually makes connections. It cleanses itself. It organizes memories. And then O is optimizing mental activity. That's the vocabulary. That's the cognitive challenge. Or what was the term that, that you used? I said, I always say that if I, if I ever had a rock band, it would be called... Um, idea density. Idea density. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a pretty cool name. For it a is rock a cool band, name. I have that is dope. Yeah. That is dope. You need to register that one on Instagram, man. Yes. Put yes, me in the yes. front row, dude. I'm right there with you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, let, let's talk a second about sleep. This is an interesting one that somebody asked on the show not too terribly long ago. They said, look, for the last five years, I've really struggled to be able to sleep through the night. It's usually six hours of interrupted sleep up to maybe three times. If they get back on track, is there a way to kind of unring the bell of the damage that they had done over those years where they were struggling with their sleep? Or is it a case of, hey, man, you better hope that you got some good reserves because there's not much that you can do? Yeah, um, I'll take a stab at that yeah, answer. Yeah. Um, I think those kind of questions are difficult to answer because, you know, um, when you look at lifestyle factors, they don't they don't have a linear effect on the brain, right? everything is mixed. So nutrition and exercise and sleep and stress and cognitive activity, they have a very multifaceted effect on the brain, right? So for someone who has had bad sleep, if they manage every other factor, then yeah, I don't think the damage is going to be extensive. And if they fix, you know, their, their sleeping yeah. pattern, they can actually thrive and get better. As a matter of fact, there've been studies that show that people who have had sleep apnea, which is a condition where people stop breathing, right? They have sleep apnea, they started having damages and they're at a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. But if that's treated, and that that gives the brain to start getting better and healing itself and their uh, risk for Alzheimer's disease reduces significantly. So with those kind of situations, you just have to look at other factors as well and how much or how much improvement can you bring into your life in all of those areas? And th that's 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 exactly right. I mean, Aisha said it perfectly, but um, and and the, the, the main thing is where the person is in their journey. Right. Right. If their journey is such that they're eating healthy, they've had some cognitive decline and uh, a couple of the elements are lacking and they improve it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They've seen it, people even at pre-dementia stage, right? we call them mild cognitive impairment or MCI stage. Mm -hmm. Even at that stage, when people have instituted changes, they've actually reversed. In fact, with multiple studies on exercise and nutrition, that even at that stage, when they instituted change, the brain actually started to grow again, mm -hmm. especially the exercise yeah. studies yeah. repeatedly. So there is a lot of reserve. Now, there is a point of no return. Right. Yeah. And we want to make sure that we speak to that because a lot of charlatans out there um, are making money off of people's fears. Once a person already has Alzheimer's, fulminant Alzheimer's, where they have the diagnosis and it's pretty advanced, you can't reverse that. Uh, you can give comfort. You can, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can help the people. But um, there's, uh, we don't want to give false hope. It, but anything short of that is 
quite hopeful. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because there, it, it's quite unfortunate to see, you know, groups of people and individuals making a ton of money uh, based on, you know, the fears that people have. They, they sell, you know, vitamin concoctions and they prescribe like strange, unnecessary tests that are not based on science. So there definitely is a point of no return. And I'm, 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 I'm very happy that, you know, we do have data that supports that. But at the same time, there's a lot of hope too. A lot of hope. Those, those same factors though, that we were talking about in terms <clears throat> of preventing it, um, even though you do reach that point of no return by implementing these changes early in the diagnosis, more sleep, better nutrition, getting up, staying active. Can that potentially then slow the progression of the disease? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. There's, there's a very clear data that shows that, you know, once a healthy lifestyle is instituted, the, the decline is not as sharp. It actually slows down the progression of the disease. And so we have data that supports that concept. I mean, um, anecdotally, I know this is just anecdotal data, but we see our own patients in the clinic the who have been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, and they were either able to reverse their scores and get better, like that the, the couple yeah. that we always talk about, or you know, even if they're in their early stages of Alzheimer's disease, by instituting these measures, they significantly slow down the process and they feel better. And it's all about quality of life and having good memories and being able to make decisions for themselves at that stage. And what about happiness? And I, I'll bring this up for a specific reason, uh, because my mother-in-law, uh, has Alzheimer's disease. She's in a nursing home, really just a half a mile from here. And since she's moved up so close to my wife and I, and those two are just, I mean, thick as thieves, mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise kind of tight, right? Um, we have seen her mood really improve and even kind of a slowing of that decline because she's being, she's able to interact with my wife, Julie, on a daily basis and just smiling. And maybe it's bringing back memories too. I, I don't really know, but I know that in speaking with other experts in terms of health, uh, health, happiness is really something that should be thought of as a premium. So I would imagine that mood here is ultra important as well. Oh, I mean, if, it, if, if, if we are all about mood, aren't we? I mean, mm. uh, what's the point of cognitive capacity without the joy and love of art, beauty, friendship, family? That's 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 why we're here. I mean, that's that's what we're hoping to do for others. Mm. Uh, yeah, that that's central. That's critical. We also know that people who have had chronic depression or anxiety are also at increased risk of dementia as as one of the factors. It's never one thing, but also people who instituted joy and happiness in their life at a particular time slow down the process, reduce the risk. So that relationship is absolute because we know that stress chronic stress creates profound inflammation, oxidation, all of these abnormalities through this pathway we call the limbic hypothalamic pituitary pathway mm -hmm. and also the autonomic pathway. These two pathways are anxiety and stress pathways that were created you know, throughout our history as, 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 as primates. And what happens is they were there to, as a reaction, as a survival reaction. As a survival reaction, they're fantastic. You're running away from a tiger for that period of time. If, if you survive, I don't know how you would survive running away from a tiger, but let's say you survive, then it's gone. It's dead. It's, you're fine. That little stress actually turns out to be great for you long-term. But if that kind of a 
indolent stress continues, which is what we are living in in modern life mm -hmm. with, with the stressors, with anxieties, with sadness, with uh, cyclothymia, with, with depression, that actually creates this protracted sympathetic overdrive, mm -hmm. this protracted abnormal response in the pituitary, which is the hormone central, which affects every hormone in your body, including growth hormones, sex hormones, thyroid hormone, even all the way indirectly with your immune system. Yeah. So stress as manifest through depression, anxiety, and others over a long period of time completely alters your entire system, let alone your, you know, your immune system. So your entire system is affected and directly and indirectly, it really starts degrading the brain. Absolutely. Let's go back to happiness here for a second. Um, I know that this was something, uh, Dean, you and I, we're, we're kind of like, uh, brothers from another mother here. <laughs> um, in terms of things that make us happy, right? And one of those things is just flat out being immature. And right before we hit the record button, you said, hey, bring up immaturity. I was like, no problem. We're talking about shrinkage. It's going to yes. be really easy to work that in. <laughs> um, so, so when it comes to immaturity and, and Alzheimer's, like, how do those two go hand in hand here? Yeah. Immaturity or, or, or comedy or, or, or humor or anything that gets you happy so why does comedy make you happy uh, not to make it not make not to even kill comedy with with esoterics with the <laughs> with with but comedy is stress relief it's an anxiety that's raised and relieved it's actually the most the most primordial form of stress relief in fact if you the first time that a child laughs is actually an anxiety that's relieved this guy with a beard comes to him and says coochie coochie coo and so it's a stress but it's a stress that there turns out to be not a stress. It's a threat that turns out to be not a threat. In fact, the first laughter is a form of cry that becomes a laughter. Look it up. See, see how. So it is the ultimate stress reliever. It's the primordial stress reliever. It's the central stress reliever. And the more immature, the better, because it goes to the simplest aspects of humanity. In fact, you want to live in a parasympathetic state in your body where it's growth and, and re rejuvenation and all of that stuff. It's a complete different system. The rest and digest. Rest and digest and rest and restore state as opposed to the fight or flight sympathetic yeah. state. One of the things that does that the most is comedy, humor. And, and, and the simpler, the better. The, the, you know, the, the, the more immature, the better. Don't, don't hold yourself back. There's no ego to be lost. There's only connectivity to be gained. There's only happiness to be gained. There's only, you're talking about medicine that affects your limbic, hypothalamic, pituitary axis. Look at that complexity. The strongest medicine is humor by far because it affects it at the most primordial level. So get, get silly. You know, it doesn't matter if people don't laugh. You, you are happy, you know. Dude, if it, if it's forever, a shrinkage man. joke, go for it. Somebody actually in our pot in, in our posts, uh, this alcohol thing really brought out uh, everybody. And somebody was uh, making a joke that uh, you know, not uh, does everything shrink. I said no, gravity has to do with it something with it too. So not everything does shrink. Thank goodness. But but uh, but but you know, comedy is you know they say comedy is medicine. Well, I just gave you the pathway to its medicinal power and it's real and it's profound. Mm -hmm. 
Ooh, you have made me a happy man. You have made me a happy man. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm going to live forever now. Um, <laughs> let's pivot back over to nutrition because goodness gracious knows that the exam roomies absolutely love to talk about food. So uh, we've been talking a lot recently about low-carb diets. And um, boy, you know, that, that just seems kind of risky. So you're talking about low-carb probably talking about low fiber as well. What do we know about the association between fiber, low carb diets, and the risk of cognitive decline? Right. So um, low carb diet is becoming, you know, very popular because, um, because of this whole notion that when you cut off an entire group, um, you actually tend to do better. I mean, that, that whole notion of, you know, getting rid of, such an important aspect of our nutrition, which is carbohydrate, which is the fuel that the brain actually needs. Our brain runs on glucose, period. Um, it, it's crazy. And of course, there are many reasons for it. There, there, there are multiple you know, um, uh, things that have ha happened in the past that has brought on that concept. In the realm of health, you know, cutting out carbohydrates reduces uh, fasting glucose, and it actually completely derails, you know, the way uh, our body manufactures energy. So, you know, the ketogenic diet and ketosis, so on and so forth. But when you look at the data, there really isn't any clear answer of low carbohydrate diets being beneficial in the long run. In the short run, and most of these studies that have looked at low carbohydrates, and let's kind of stick to keto, a ketogenic diet specifically, because that is a form of low carbohydrate diet that is high in fat and low in carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates and simple carbohydrates. They've only been done for a couple of months, three months to maybe at the most six months. And they were only feasibility studies, which means they wanted to find out whether people stuck to it or not. And most of the results showed that, first of all, it was difficult to stick to. You know, and then secondly, the results were so bad and they were so meaningless that when you look at a factor of memory test scores, it really didn't make a difference of one or two scores to, to begin with. So overall, there, first of all, we don't even have good evidence that low carbohydrate diet is good for brain health. As far as weight loss, as far as diabetes is concerned, in the short run, it might seem beneficial because when you cut down our carbohydrates, you lose a lot of water weight. And so people think that this is actually a good thing. But in the long run, our bodies are not made. We're not biologically made to, uh, you know, get rid of carbohydrates from our diet. We actually see the damage not only in our vasculature, but in our brain health as well. So there really isn't any good data showing that low carbohydrate diet is good for the brain. What about the the types of carbs though? So you talk about refined carbs, your donuts, yeah. your sweets and things like that versus the natural yeah. carbs that you would find in say sweet potatoes or fruit or something like that. That is the biggest problem, isn't it? Like everybody thinks that carbs are bad and you know you put a whole spectrum of foods in that category you know an apple is very different from an apple crumble dessert that you find on the shelves in grocery store you know a, a, a sweet potato is different from donuts an apple you know, or you know, all kinds of fruits and vegetables are different from the processed um, you know, carbohydrates that we see on the shelf. So the data on unprocessed complex carbohydrates is there. It shows that when people eat whole grains, fruits, 
vegetables, root vegetables, the carbohydrates that come from different kinds of grains and seeds and nuts, they're phenomenal. As a matter of fact, adding all that fiber and the complex carbohydrates allows for our muscles, our brain, and all of our organs to thrive because it produces, it gives off, you know, the simple forms of glucose in a very quantified manner in a time-released fashion that our body recognizes and uses. But obviously, you know, eating donut or pure sugar that people add to their teas, to their coffees, and to all the, you know, um, carbonated drinks or the sweetened beverages that we see, that can't be good for you. That Our body is not made to actually accept the, the, the increased surge of sugar in our circulation. So it's important for us to understand what carbs actually mean. You know, what is the simple carb and what is a complex carbohydrate? So to kind of, you know, uh, summarize it, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, complex carbohydrates in its most natural, unprocessed forms are the healthiest things ever. And our body actually needs them. While processed carbohydrates, you know, white sugar, um, even, you know, uh, regular pastas that are from refined carbohydrates, white bread, bread, honey, or any kind of like, you know, sugars that have different names, like coconut sugar or brown sugar or natural cane sugar. They're all simple sugars that could damage our brain and our body. A lot of people though, uh, they try to get away from those sugars and they go for the zero calorie sweetener. So instead of drinking a regular can of Coke, they'll reach for the diet Coke. Have there been any studies on uh, what role those diet drinks might play in terms of overhaul, uh, overall brain function? Yeah, so there are some studies that um, show that, you know, there are certain artificial sugars that may be harmful, but they were all done on animals. So, you know, aspartame is um, is considered as one of the harmful artificial sweeteners because it was associated with inflammatory changes and brain damage. But unfortunately, those studies were done in animals. They haven't really done good studies on um, human beings as of yet. And then there's another category of sweeteners that are more, um, you know, or I would say partially processed or not as processed as say aspartame and sucralose are things like monk fruit sweeteners or stevia that is derived from a plant. There's no clear evidence of those being harmful, obviously in the, you know, normal small amounts that we need. There haven't been studies uh, showing that, you know, large uh, amounts of stevia could be harmful for people. So uh, as, as far as its use is concerned, we as two neurologists, we say, if you want to sweeten your beverages, go with stevia. Monk fruit sweeteners are good too. Erythritol. Erythritol can be good too. And these are for people who may have, say, for example, some issue with their blood sugar levels or they want to cut down on their calories. But, you know, if someone is really healthy, a little bit of pure maple syrup wouldn't really help them, uh, hurt them at all. Uh, so you're talking about sweetening beverages here. Uh, let's talk about tea and coffee tea, of course, in your neuro nine, which is, uh, you laid out so beautifully in your book. What, there it is right over my shoulder here. It's always on the bookshelf behind me. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you guys knew that. Um, but, uh, what about coffee? I didn't see coffee on the, the neuro nine list. So how do the two compare there? So uh, tea so far, to the best of our knowledge, seems to be beneficial, especially certain types of tea, green teas and, and others uh, are, seem to be uh, beneficial. They're antioxidants, they're, they're anti-inflammatory factors. Coffee is a complex beverage. I, I mean, we all know this. 
Um, definitely people that have anxiety disorders, people who have heart conditions, people who have, you know, all kinds of other maladies that might be um, worsened by a coffee should avoid coffee. Or acid reflux. Or acid reflux. So, so there's a lot of diseases that, that should avoid, uh, including thyroid and others, right, should avoid um, uh, uh, coffee. But uh, and then if the, you are drinking coffee, definitely not with, um, uh, you know, with the dairy and, and sugar, which is actually something that's usually consumed with. Try to avoid that. Now, how much coffee seems to be beneficial? The data is kind of uh, all over the place, but it appears that drinking some coffee seems to be beneficial or there seems to be a positive correlation with drinking some coffee and some lack absence of degenerative diseases like par Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. Again, the data is not great, but it's pretty strong enough to actually is to for us to say uh, not in excess, and and that's difficult to determine as far as different populations. But four drinks a day or so, uh, it seems to be correlated positively when it comes to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. But it, all those other factors have to be taken into consideration because of its complexity. We didn't put it in the book, right? Because there are too many factors that that uh, negate it. Yeah, we we say you know if you don't drink coffee, you don't have to start it. Correct. You know you could eat some greens or blueberries or whatever. Maybe add some spices to your diet, and you're going to get a lot of anti-inflammatory foods. But if you are drinking it, and if you're drinking, say, for example, a cup a day, then you don't necessarily have to stop it because you know there's evidence that it might be good for the brain. Now, I see a couple of mugs in front of you. Personality question. So what are what are we sipping on? Oh, I'm I'm drinking some jasmine green tea. And and uh, yeah, and and mine is um, uh, uh, yours is always mint. Mint. Isn't it? It's always mint. Uh, yeah, I'm mint very minty. Or... <laughs> Mint or peach? You like the peach? No, I like mint more. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'm it not changes so peachy. with every season. Yeah, yeah. It's more <laughs> mint. I, I, for some reason, I absolutely love mint. It, well, it's it's a good tea. I usually get those in like those herbal tea samplers. Mint is is usually one of them. Um, not bad. That's typically a PM kind of a tea for me. As we tape this, it is evening time. So, yeah. hey man, right on. Um, <laughs> So listen, uh, you mentioned heart health there uh, just a minute ago, and that brings me to one of my final questions. We have about 10 minutes left here. Thank you all for being so generous with your time. Um, Viagra originally developed, as I understand it, as a heart medication. Uh, it turns out, you know, it's good for both your top and your bottom parts. Um, <laughs> and uh, you talk about this study here showing that people who take Viagra have a significantly lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. Dean, what's going on here, buddy? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why you point at me, but that's okay. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, come I, on, man. Man. Come on. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to step on. Come on. No. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the data was pretty strong. I mean, um, it, 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 it stood out. I was about to say it stood up, but it stood out. <laughs> but you said be silly. So I'm I being love silly. you, man. Yeah. You are the best. So. Um, but uh, the data is uh, quite robust, and 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 uh, but again, it's one study. We always say, even if it's a powerful study, even if it's a robust study, even if it's a well-powered study, one study does not science make. One study mm -hmm. does not a conclusion make. We have to see this repeatedly. Mm -hmm. We have to see that um, others, uh, other types of studies actually reproduce this, and then proactive studies that where people actually give it and not give it, and and see how people do as well. Um, so at this point. Uh, we're kind of optimistic that this incredible, uh, you know, easy drug that could benefit um, well, both your brain and uh, your your sexuality 
can be out there and we're the studies have started and we're hoping that this might actually open up a, a, a pathway mechanistically although we don't always make conclusions mechanistically mm -hmm. but mechanistically it kind of makes sense you know nitric oxide it, this is the the, chemi the 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 drug that actually affects nitric oxide nitric oxide actually vasodilates the most vascular organ in your body is not what you think it is it's your brain mm -hmm. by far trillions billions of connection arteries if you ever look at this vascular picture of the brain it's it's all vessels so those vessels become tenuous as we get older those vessels become tenuous as we, as we move more more as as we move less that's why movement is so important and and maybe this is how it actually works it vasodilates those vessels especially over long term and gives blood to the cells that would be otherwise lost Exciting. So a uh, hard turn here. Um, I, I want to make sure that I get this question in because I thought that it was absolutely fascinating. I was speaking recently with T. Colin Campbell and I asked him, I was like, well, look, man, you know, the, the way that you're kind of framing this, I think that you're suggesting that all animal proteins, whether they be from chicken or fish, whatever, should be viewed in the same light as red and processed meat in terms of cancer. Um, he thought, yeah, they, they probably should. Uh, how do you feel about those other animal proteins in terms of the risk of Alzheimer's disease? Um, yeah, so um, as far as animal protein and brain health is concerned, we don't have good evidence that fish, specifically fish and marine um, animals are bad for the brain. And that's one thing that we keep on, you know, for the sake of integrity and being true to the science, we try to understand it better. And we're hoping that we understand it uh, clearly. There's really no good evidence that fish is bad. And I think it's not the fish, it's the omega-3 fatty acid content in the fish. And fish being the major source of omega-3 fatty acids for most population is the issue. Now, if people were able to get omega-3 fatty acids from say flax seeds and chia seeds or ALA coming from plant foods, or if they supplement it with algae, I think that would not be an issue at all. But from the data that we have, it seems like omega-3 fatty acid is the most important fat for the brain and that we need it on a regular basis. There have been actually some changes that have come in different studies. So, for example, for many years, the Mediterranean diet was touted as the best diet for brain health. And they looked at Alzheimer's disease and stroke and Parkinson's disease and people who ate a Mediterranean diet. They actually had lower risk of that disease. And in that diet, people actually consumed fish several times a week. But then another dietary pattern that was a more pure, a cleaner and more specific version of the Mediterranean diet called the MIND diet, which is Mediterranean and DASH diet for uh, neurodegenerative delay, intervention for neurodegenerative delay, MIND diet. It showed that people don't necessarily have to consume fish on a regular basis. Maybe even cons consuming it once a week would be enough to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And that shows that if we have a planned plant-based diet, meaning if we pay attention to our omega-3 fatty acid consumption, we don't have to eat fish at all. Um, and with all respect to Colin, which is amazing, amazing oh, human amazing, being, yeah. I think all meats are not the same. Um, beef jerky, this processed meat with lots of salt is not the same as everything else. We ourselves, we say that avoiding meat altogether is great. 
Uh, even fish, we say that although there's no data that it's bad, in fact, some data that it might be good for the brain, but we think it's the omega-3. We we don't uh, you know push for fish because we think of the fact that maybe the the thing that's not accounted for long term is the uh, the toxins, yeah. not just lead and uh, uh, mercury, uh, but lots of other toxins that bioaccumulate in fish. Mm -hmm. So we worry about that, and as well as the fact that. I mean, if, as a public health person, if you're not taking the bigger picture into consideration, then you're not a public health person. You're talking it on social media. You have to take the animal component where the, how we're devastating the oceans. And we have to take the environmental component where how we're devastating the environment. If all of that is not taken into consideration, we are just trying to you know find followers. And that's wrong. Absolutely. We strongly believe that's the omega-3 component. We just put in uh, uh, two papers that were accepted uh, one omega-3 in the developing brain and one on omega-3 in the aging brain. The only fat that the brain needs is omega-3. Mm -hmm. You can get it from food, but if you're worried, take some supplements. We take supplements. Yeah, For transparency sake, yeah, we, we don't mm -hmm. sell anything. We don't push any particular brand, but we take algae-based omega-3 because it's that important. Our children do. They've done very well as, as plant-based children throughout their life, and they've taken omega-3. Um, so it, that's important to know, um, give some gradation to these things, but also speak to why we don't eat these, these, uh, these animals. So that brings me to actually, I, I wasn't planning on going this direction at all, but this is an important one. And we do also hear from a certain segment of the audience. Uh, a lot of times they'll message me privately and they'll say, well, look, you know, like I take a supplement, but based off of some of the things that I've read, some of the things that are being said, whether it's in the comments or by some of the other guests on the show, you know, they feel guilty about taking a supplement if it's anything other than B12. They feel like they should be getting 1,000% of everything that they need strictly by eating a whole food plant-based diet. But, you know, what would your message be to somebody who's really struggling to or struggling with those types of emotions. You know what I mean? It's like, we, yeah. we have this idea of what perfection is and you try to hit it, but when you don't, man, it's like, that just really hurts. Yeah. Absolutely. First of all, I think we must be careful not to make people feel guilty. Uh, we should inform people. We should give them guidance. We should even give them difficult, difficult information. Like, for example, this this uh, post that we just put in, which is said basically no amount of alcohol is good. This is literally, you know, touching the third, you know, the the the, the thing that you're not supposed to touch in social media you don't tell people that alcohol is bad or that you shouldn't drink at all. That, that's something that's not to be done. Mm -hmm. We did it, but at the same time, we said, if you choose to drink, don't feel guilty. There, you, know, you should know how much, you should know that it's not good, but at the same time, you worry about resilience, do other things that, that, that make you healthy, sleep well, eat well, all of that stuff. But we can't change the science for, 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 for the situation. But the same thing here. I mean, we our knowledge of vitamin intake versus getting food, uh, your vitamins from food is not 100%. Mm -hmm. um, and we do know that vitamin B12 is incredibly important. And <clears throat> if you think that you're getting it all by uh, from food, fine, check your levels. And we do check our levels, yeah. <clears throat> as well as methylmalonic acid, which is a, how your body is using it. If you're, you're sure that you're getting all the other nutrients, then that's fine. Omega-3, same thing. We don't have a good way of measuring, truly measuring. There are, of course, there are tests that check omega-3 but really don't have a good way of measuring it and it is so critical that you should be aware of it you should have you should take more food we should take more ala um you know uh, chia flaxseed and at the same time avoid omega-6 pathways 
avoid alcohol because that will affect the liver enzymes that would transfer ALA to EPA to DHA. So be extra aware of it because that's how important omega-3 is. But if, you, if you're not sure if you're doing all that, take a, 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 a supplement. Yeah. Not always. You shouldn't take supplement for everything. We know that that can be harmful. Right. But for these kind of things like, you know, B12 and omega-3, they are essential, critical. If you're not sure of your levels, getting a supplement is not bad. And don't feel guilty about it and don't let anybody make you feel guilty. Because we're, we're giving you science in perspective. Science is perspective. That's important. Yeah, and I can't speak for anybody else uh, at the organization, but I will speak for me personally, and I will say I want to isolate that clip and play it back on loop. So thank you very much for bringing that truth forward, man. That is a critically important message. Uh, we have one minute left, and so uh, really quickly, uh, Aisha, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down when it comes to olive oil and brain health. Uh, it depends. I wish it was just that clear, right? So <laughs> <laughs> you ask very difficult questions. Now, as far as olive oil is concerned, so oil, you know, it's a processed food. It's highly, um, it, it's very dense as far as calories are yeah, concerned. One minute. Huh? Oh, uh, okay. I'll, I'll make it short. But you, you know, look, we're not live, you know, <laughs> take all the time that you need. Okay. But, you know, as far as, um, and, and, you know, um, I, I want to be respectful for people who are on, you know, a no oil diet. And that's absolutely fine. It's not an extremely important element of our diet. But if people add a little bit of extra virgin olive oil to their diet that makes their food palatable, then there is really no harm. Again, just like I mentioned with fish, there really isn't any um, data that shows that we're going to harm our body or our brain by having a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. But yes, if you eat a lot of it, that would add more calories that would just, you know, cause a lot of other problems as far as weight management and inflammation in the body is concerned. So I don't know if that was helpful, but it was definitely helpful. Beautiful. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. And, and who knew that there were so many layers to olive oil, right? It's not just opening a bottle and sprinkling a little bit on this or that or whatever. Like there, that, that is complex as coffee, man. Um, so I know we have no time, but I'll tell a story to end it. So I told this to one of my patients that of oils, if you want to take any oil, extra virgin olive oil. And a month later, he came back with a bottle saying, here it is. Oh. I said, why did you bring the bottle? He said, I have three glasses of this a day. I was like, oh, my goodness. What I was talking about was spritzers. You know, spray the olive oil on your food on small amounts, not three glasses. So bad. you got to be careful when you, when you give information like that. Context matters. Complexity matters. And, and binary always hurts. But at the same time, yeah. It's, it's, imagine drinking three cups of olive oil for a month. Thank goodness I stopped that uh, because that was that was damaging. I get so, shivers just thinking about like that. like cups. Yes, like yes. cups. Absolutely. Wow! Well, I just went to Costco and got like those Costco size olive oil, <laughs> yes, like gallons. Of course. Like, like, Whoa! His bad. insides were all kinds of lubed up. Yeah, oh my that, goodness gracious! That, that, yeah. Oh my so god! We, I was very careful from then on to just say spritzer. Oh, wow! Okay, that's um. Boy, that deserves an award. I, I just, I don't even know what to say about that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, speaking of awards, you guys just got a, a cool one from the National Academy of Medicine, right? For the research yes. yeah. that you're doing in the community. Congratulations. What uh, what are you able to share with us? What do you guys have cooking? Well, our, our, our joy, our purpose, our very existence is about promulgating information about health and prevention in the community, especially 
uh, disparities communities, communities that, that don't have information. Remember, real estate is location, location, location. Public health is access, access, access. And the very communities that need more access to information, more access to resources have less. So, and, and certain populations, be it African-American, Hispanic, and even women in general, um, that information is lacking. And that's why the rate of stroke is three times as much. Dementia is two to three times as much. And all these vascular diseases, uh, significantly higher. And it has nothing to do with genetics. It has more to do with access to information. And our entire work is to spread that information to the communities in the way that they can you know, take it in. We don't just go in and say whole food plant-based or nothing, or you're out. We're out. That's, that's insensitive, arrogant, top-down methodology, which is very common in many circles. We say, this is the optimal, whole food plant-based, but how can we change your diet 10%, which is your diet, the way you're eating it, the way you love it, the way your family will love it, but we'll change it 10% because once you make 10% change and they see it in their lives and they see it in their health and the taste is still there, the 20% will come and then the 30%. That's how it's approached. That's the way we do it. Beautiful. I love that so much. I love, I just love the way y'all are built. Y'all are complex, <laughs> immature, fun, doing just extraordinary work. I mean, oh, we just, love you, Chuck. Oh, no, awesome. you, you guys are the greatest. Uh, and listen, uh, again, there it is right there on Instagram. Notice the updated handle, the brain Thank docs. All right. So pull it up right now on your mobile devices. Give them a follow. And uh, yeah, there, there you are, Dean, talking about alcohol once again. So uh, <laughs> well, that I'm is definitely gonna, a talk, get ripped apart. We're getting ready for the, yeah, the comments. comebacks. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are awesome. You are so welcome back anytime. I mean, Love my goodness you, gracious. When I go on vacation, I'm just going to have you guys guest host. Uh, you, you're just the best. Uh, Dean oh, and you're I the best, Chuck. Thank you so much for having sure. us. Like Thank I said you. earlier, you're amazing. Thank you for creating this wonderful platform. We hear so many people actually amazing. say amazing things about the podcast. So thank you for what you're doing. If you enjoyed today's show, please go ahead and do us a favor and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you do that, please also leave a five-star rating. I'm telling you, and I'm thanking you right now, every new subscription, every five-star rating truly does help someone who needs this information right now. This potentially life-saving and life-changing information helps them find it when they need it the most. So if you could just take a moment to go ahead and do that, we would greatly appreciate it. Now, a couple of days after we recorded this interview, I got a nice email from the Shurzais, and they said they were still laughing about our conversation. And remember that happiness and laughter and even immaturity are all good medicine. So go ahead, pull a prank, crack a joke, crack it at the appropriate time, but go ahead and do that and make your mind happy. And one of the other things that may make your mind happy is flipping through the Shurzai's incredible book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. And there's a link to purchase your copy right now in the episode notes. And also don't forget to follow them on Instagram under their new name, The Brain Docs. I should put up a recipe not long ago for a brain-loving kale salad that is super tasty. I'm telling you, it's not just your brain that's going to love this thing. Your taste buds are going to thank you as well. 
And Dean, he's been busy on there as well, continuing our conversation about alcohol. And as you might imagine, a lot of people still have some questions about it. So go ahead, check that out. And I guarantee you're going to get a giggle or two by thumbing through the comments as well. But listen, even though we had a good time on the show today, this is a very deadly, serious topic, talking about Alzheimer's disease. I mean, consider this for a second. Let's get serious. During the first two decades of this century, the rate of people dying from heart disease actually decreased by almost seven and a half percent. But the number of people who died from Alzheimer's disease increased by 145 percent. It is a fact that one out of every three seniors will die with some form of dementia or Alzheimer's disease in this country. And there are currently 6 million Americans living with this wretched disease. My mother-in-law being one of them. And it breaks my heart to watch her decline. But what hurts even more is how it tears my wife apart seeing her mom, who has been her best friend for her entire life, seeing that woman who she admires so much, slowly drift away. Of course, some days are better than others, and she's certainly doing a lot better now that Julie gets to see her every day. And for that, I am so very grateful. But there are more than 6 million other families out there having a similar experience right now. But on the positive side, that's also six million chances for us to stand together and do what we can do to further research for a cure. But equally important to that is that we do what we can do right now to reduce our own risk and hopefully show that Alzheimer's can not only skip one generation, but it can skip many generations because we're doing what we know gives us the best hope for a healthy mind as we grow older. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the Brain Docs, Dean and Aisha Shurzai for being here and inspiring us. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.